0: What's going on? Happy Monday. Welcome to the Pete Callender Show. I'm the Pete Callender of the show, and uh, thank you very much for listening. Thanks for all your support on the Patreon page. Uh, You can also uh, download and subscribe all of the podcasts uh, on your favorite podcast platforms. We're on Spotify, uh, iHeart, Radio.com, obviously iTunes. Uh, That's our biggest platform, is the uh, Apple iTunes platform. So thank you very much for all of that. Thank you, all the Patreon uh, supporters. Uh, We did a uh, a live stream, actually, this weekend on Saturday, and that was a lot of fun, even though I am just consistently plagued with technical difficulties. But uh, patrons uh, like Sherry and Steven and Steven and Trudy and Tavis and Taylor and Terrence and Teresa and Trent and Yuri all helped make that possible, and I appreciate it. Um, everybody okay uh, after the Easter weekend? Anybody get arrested for celebrating the resurrection of Christ this weekend? No? Good? Okay. Fantastic. By the way, the Department of Justice, U.S., DOJ, Director of Communications, Kerry Kupek or Kupak, or Kupech. Anyway, Kerry says, during this sacred week for many Americans, Attorney General Barr, is monitoring government regulation of religious services while social distancing policies are appropriate during this emergency they must be applied even handedly and not single out religious organizations uh and there are all sorts of examples that have uh, uh popped up in the news the mississippi was fining uh church attendees at a drive-in service uh, louisville also banned drive-in services wake county did this uh, there was a uh, Tennessee, a couple of uh, cases out of Tennessee as well. There was the Kentucky governor. So like this idea that you can allow for drive-in food service, but not drive-in religious service, that's going to be problematic for these, uh, for these local government officials uh, if they start getting sued. Oh, and by the way, some of them are, as they should be. Uh, as Kelly Shackelford, the president of First, uh, the First Liberty Institute, said, quote, cars in parking lots are fine. It's only a crime if the cars in the parking lot are at the church parking lot, apparently. When I launched the podcast uh, now, geez, uh, almost uh, two months ago, one of the first calls that I got was from uh, Chuck, the owner of Mattress Man Stores. And uh, I think he actually was the first call I got from a, uh, from an advertiser. And uh, he said, whatever it is, I want to be a part of it. Uh, we have to support our neighbors. And uh, it, it really meant the world to me. It really did. And uh, it's why I've always been proud to be an ambassador for his business. He's a great guy, and it's a great business. Um They have great hearts. They do all sorts of charitable donations of mattresses to local shelters and stuff. They hire veterans. They also have just the best mattresses, which is really, it becomes very easy to sell mattresses when you have the best mattresses. They have inner spring, pillow top, natural latex mattresses and all that. And look, they don't want you to get arrested either for going out and looking for mattresses. So they redid their entire website and uh, you go to mattressmanstores.com and if you type in the discount code RESTWELL, all one word, RESTWELL, you get an additional 20% savings Site wide mattressmanstores.com. They have a 120 day comfort guarantee, so it means you're going to love your mattress. All right. And if you don't, they'll exchange it for free for a limited time. After all, sleeping on the right mattress can help you combat stress and anxiety in these COVID times. They also, if you're local, they also have free local white glove delivery. Okay. Go to mattressmanstores.com, find The next bed, the perfect bed for you. Experience the difference at Mattressman. Buy local and sleep better. Now, the longer we stay in lockdown, uh, the harder it's going to be to reopen. The CDC director, Dr. Robert Redfield, was on the Today Show on NBC, and he told Savannah Guthrie uh, that uh, uh, hopefully here we are nearing the end. He warned, though, that the only way to know the peak is to see it in the rearview mirror. But he says the numbers are stabilizing
1: nationally.
2: Are you ready to say that we are at the peak, at the apex?
1: You know, I think, Savannah, we are nearing the peak right now. I think we'll sometime, hopefully this week, we will be able to say that, you know, you'll know when you're at the peak when the next day is actually less than the day before. But clearly, the rate uh, we are stabilizing across the country right now in terms of the state of this outbreak.
2: Looking at the calendar, as I did this morning, I realized we have another three full work weeks of social distancing. The president has said he's hopeful the country could reopen May 1st. He said it's the hardest decision he's going to have to make. From a public health perspective, your lane, is it doable, conceivable that we could reopen the country on May 1st?
1: You know, I think it's important to look at the country as many different separate situations. This uh, uh, pandemic has affected different parts of the country differently. Um, we're looking at the data very carefully, county by county by county, and we will be assessing that. Clearly, the things that need to happen for the reopening is the what's happening with the numbers of new cases, We've got to substantially augment our public health capacity to do early case identification, isolation, and contact tracing, and obviously make sure we have the uh, medical and hospital capacity, and and really start working to rebuild confidence in the community so the community has confidence to reopen.
2: Do you feel we need to do widespread antibody testing? In other words, that blood test that shows if you've ever had COVID-19 or coronavirus because so many people, and I've seen studies that even say up to 50%, can be spreading the virus and never show any symptoms at all.
1: Yeah, in terms of active infection, there is a limit to the time that one is gonna be infectious. Um, in ter- and so that's the one test for the virus, to see if you're actually infected. And we're gonna need to have that aggressively employed as we begin to reopen, because again, central to the success of that, so we stay open, is to be able to do early case identification, isolation, and contact tracing, and to basically prevent uh, uh, the opportunity for community transmission to come back into the system. Antibody testing is gonna give us a good idea from a surveillance point of view of, of how significant the outbreak was, um, and in certain circumstances, I think it will help bring consumer, consumer confidence in certain uh, uh, workforces, uh, particularly some infrastructure workforces, where individuals will have greater confidence knowing they're already immune, particularly in the healthcare setting, uh, to see which healthcare workers basically have been exposed and now may be able to care for patients uh, uh, um, without a concern of uh, infection.
2: One of the influential modelers, a researcher at University of Washington, talked about the dangers of reopening society prematurely. He said he's concerned about a second wave of infection actually in July or August. What's your take on that?
1: Well, there's no doubt uh, that we have to reopen uh, correctly. It's going to be a, a step-by-step gradual process it has got to be data-driven. Um, and as I said, I think it would be community by community, county by county, um, we've, we've all sacrificed a substantial amount and I do want to thank the American people. As you've seen with the original models we had in terms of the, the potential mortality of this virus on our nation, it could have easily been, you know, 250,000, 500,000, a million, uh, I think the social distancing that the American people all embraced has really led to the reality that we see the overall mortality while sadly still too high was far less than we anticipated. So this has to be done very carefully.
2: And on that note, and and look, there's going to be a time to look back once the crisis has passed, but the New York Times is reporting that you and Dr. Fauci were among those recommending mitigation, the social distancing in late February. As we all know, the White House did not issue those guidelines until three weeks later, mid-March. And Dr. Fauci candidly said yesterday, look, we could have saved lives if it had started earlier. Do you agree with that?
1: I think it's important what you said. I think right now our job is to get through this outbreak and and get our uh, country back to work. I will say that if you look back in in January and February, the cases we had in this country were all related to China travel. Actually uh, it was 14 cases throughout the country. CDC evaluated over 800 contacts of those individuals and only identified two individuals that had been infected both spouses. It wasn't until February 28th when we saw our first community transmission where we said wait a minute where's this where is this coming from? And so, I think it's important when we when we get back and we get through this, we can look back at the timeline. Um, but our initial response was containment, and and as I mentioned, through February 28th, I think we had 14 cases in the country, uh, and that's when we got the first two community cases at the end of the month, um, and, and then began yeah. to and, and began to institute broader mitigation.
2: And real quickly, I mean, the cases exploded between February 28th and then mid-March. I guess that just to put a fine point on it, if you can answer yes or no, whether you did recommend that social distancing in late February.
1: We we had an in as February 28th, as we got into March, we recognized in different areas that mitigation was now important. Seattle opened up mitigation. CDC sent uh, recommendations to uh, Washington, to California, to New York, and to Florida, uh, recommending that they expand mitigation in those areas. Right, so a couple of things there I think are really important. First, he
0: says um, we're going to need both virus and antibody testing before widely reopening public squares. Um, and Ed Morrissey at HotAir.com, He says the reason why, so the virus, uh, uh, testing uh, will be needed to identify acute infections before they become cases that require hospitalization. And the antibody testing uh, will be to ensure that the contagion doesn't spread asymptomatically, people who don't have symptoms. The timeline makes that point pretty clearly, as uh, Dr. Robert Redfield notes. By the way, I loved him in The Natural. It's fantastic. The CDC did not see the first U.S. cases of community transmission. So, person to person, just out and about, you know, you're at the store and oh my gosh, now I'm sick. Uh, they didn't, the CDC did not see the first U.S. case of that until February 28th. Okay. That's when they first pushed then for social distancing mitigation in the hot spots. Um, but by that point, the community transmission had already begun to explode exponentially, this huge ramp up. You know, rapid rise in the number of cases. And that pattern matters because if we're going to be reopening uh, how it spreads and how we're able to identify the hot spots and then essentially, you know, lock those down while everywhere else kind of continues on uh, with some, you know, semblance of a normal existence. Um, So, because if you don't contain the area, then you end up with a hot spot that quickly spreads. And because of the exponential cycle of this thing, it then explodes all over again. And we're in the same position. So, like, for example, the numbers are getting better in New York and New Jersey. But now you're starting to see the eruption of uh, the infection rates. Uh, I think Minnesota is another uh, new hotspot. Um, and... This is the downside, he says, to flattening the curve. It lowers the peak, but it lengthens the curve. Lowers the peak, but lengthens the curve. And I think a lot of people actually don't or did not, at least in the not-too-distant past here, they didn't understand that. That's why I've been saying this from the very beginning. The flattening of the curve doesn't end the curve. It actually makes it longer. Dr. Redfield says that the reopening won't necessarily be grand, and some are going to have to wait their turns, right? These are going to be local decisions. Are you going to be ready to reopen your business? Are you going to be able to do that? Old Grouch's Military Surplus, Tim, who runs it, at the Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde, uh, actually started by his dad, um, the original old grouch um, and uh, Tim uh, now uh, runs the store. And when all of this started happening, he was on the phone almost all day long, giving advice to people on how to be prepared for it. Now that the store is closed for the pandemic, uh, he's giving out his text Uh, or his uh, his phone number for text messages so people can still get advice. They can ask about stuff that he's got in stock. He can find you items and such. So send him a text message to 565-2497. That's 565 2497 uh, it's Tim at Old Grouch's Military Surplus. And if you are EMS, law enforcement, you need some uniforms, he can get you those as well. Uh, just you can make an appointment. Send him a text, 565 2497, or go to his website, oldgrouch.com. Oldgrouch.com. So, cancellation of schools and group activities and uh, a lot of businesses. Uh Lee Miller's uh business kind of fits all three of those categories, almost like a trifecta. And uh he joins us now, Lee Miller. He is the founder of Elite Hoops Basketball. You can see their website at ElitehoopsBasketball dot com and welcome to the show. Lee, thank you for joining me.
3: Pete, thanks for having me on. Excited to be here today.
0: Sure. So tell me first off, what is uh EHB, Elite Hoops Basketball, and uh like how long have you been doing this?
3: Well, Pete, we are the southeast, southeast largest basketball training academy. We started it in 2003. It was an idea that I put together while I was working on my MBA here in marketing at Mercer University. We had to come up with a business plan and put this business plan together. And uh, a couple years later, I ended up quitting my job and getting into this. Um, but we train players all the way from ages six all the way through college and pros. The majority of the market's middle school and high school players. But We offer skill development training, shooting classes, travel teams, and we conduct all of the Nike basketball camps throughout the Southeast. Throughout
0: the whole Southeast. So this is, uh, it's not really a small business, right? This is a not-so-small business.
3: It, it's a small business in terms of, you know, uh, revenue and number of employees and things like that. But, yes, we, we've scaled it pretty good uh, over, over the past uh, 16 or 17 years for sure.
0: So for folks who may be interested in some of your background, and I read your bio at the website, and uh, you've got a lot of, uh, obviously, basketball experience throughout uh, Georgia and uh the the Southeast, but for uh, North Carolinians, you did work at Duke University's basketball camps, although Tar Heel fans may hold that against you. <laughs> uh, you were a walk-on at University of Georgia, and... Um, you also did, uh, you do training of these, uh, kids and through, uh, as you said, all the way up through high school. And one of, uh, uh, one of the players that you trained is now on the Charlotte Hornets, right?
3: Yes. Guy by the name of Kobe Simmons. I was fortunate enough to work with him the spring of his eighth grade year, um, began working with him and worked with him all the way through his high school uh, here in Atlanta, St. Francis High School. Obviously went on to play at Arizona for a year and went went to the NBA after that. Just an amazing talent, an amazing work ethic. Obviously a tremendous athlete and uh, truly the sky's the limit for a kid like him who just has uh, all those attributes that make an NBA player what they are today.
0: Right, well, there isn't any NBA games though going on right now, right? I mean, that was one of the, the I guess that was sort of the, uh, the wake-up call for a lot of people when the NBA and then the NCAA canceled their tournaments. I mean, that's... That was, that was huge. It's unprecedented. This is like a generational event, right?
3: It truly was. And as you mentioned, generational thing. I, I have three little girls at home, and I mentioned to my oldest who's gotten into basketball the past two years, uh, I said, this hasn't happened in my lifetime, and it hasn't happened really in my mom's lifetime, and my mom's 81 years of age. And so it really is, to, to your point, a generational thing that no one's seen all of these sports come to a halt like it is
0: right now i'm looking at your website i've i saw your schedule for all of these camps and you've still got them on the calendar for what in in, in late may i guess and that's optimistic I i i mean i hope everything is kind of working again but um there's no telling at this point, right? So tell us a little bit about what happened. You're in the Atlanta area. Well, you do these camps all over the Southeast, Charlotte as well. I saw you have a coach in the Charlotte area and Tennessee and stuff. But um, uh, so I'm curious in Atlanta, this is where you mainly operate out of, right? The Atlanta area. And how, what was that uh, timeline for like the, the closing of various things? Like, did the schools go first and they shut down all the schools and extracurricular activities?
3: Sure it was uh, it was that second week, I guess, in March, where we started to get wind of uh, some of our facilities. We do have our own facility in Chambly, Georgia, and we're actually working on building two others here in Metro Atlanta. But as you spoke to, we have about seven other facilities we rent here in Metro Atlanta and one to two other high school or church or rec facilities that we weren't rent in a number of uh, different cities and states throughout the Southeast. And that second week in March when you had mentioned uh, the NBA got canceled and then the uh, major basketball NCAA tournaments did, we were still able to operate pretty much through that week. And then as the schools began to cancel, that those are the places that we rent, and they said, hey, if, if we're canceling school, we have to cancel your rental agreement. We we're Our facility that that we have here in Atlanta, we were able to operate out of another full week the county rules and the city rules permitted us to shrink our classes down to ten, um, so we did that. And we had some small group sessions, and beginning um, that week of like the March 21st, I believe, that's when we had to shut down everything completely everywhere. No one on ones, no small group sessions, camps, or anything. So we've been shut down for a solid uh, three plus weeks now. So, what does that
0: mean for obviously the kids aren't getting trained, but they're also not, you know they are not going to school either and stuff so they're not playing any of these games right and they're not getting this training but uh from a business perspective I mean, like I said you're sort of a not so small business small business but uh like this this is all three areas that you um that you that you work in you've got the you know group activities although I, I was thinking well there's 10 so groups of 10, like you may be able to get a five on five, right? But no, it's, <laughs> you can't do that. Uh, and so the groups of 10, that hurt you. The cancellation of schools hurt you. And then, and then they just told every business, you got to shut down. Um, and that's where you're operating under now. And this is all what a uh, 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 your revenue model requires there to be training, right? So what are you doing?
3: Well, you're right. We shut everything down. And it's something that as we built the business over the years, we've always factored in, you know, a small recession or, or a blip in this market. And, you know, you save cash and do the best that you can and to to look for these things. But a pure out cancellation of every city and every market and every gym, and you can't even do one-on-ones, that's just a shock to obviously our business and any other business that's similar to it. So right now what we're offering for our kids, um, it's no cost to the kids, but we have uh, – just to give you a scale, right now in, in Atlanta uh, before the shutdown, we had about 500 kids – either playing with us on a travel team or training with us. And so about 500 kids a week were coming to our program here in Atlanta. And those are primarily elementary, middle, and high school players. And so obviously everything's shut down right now. What we're doing for them is, whether it was a session that they were in or a practice, our coaches are all doing a 30-minute Zoom class with them. So we're meeting with them online for 30 minutes, Um, not necessarily at the time that their practice was, but just at some point during the week. And then what we do have our full-time staff doing is we're bringing them into our facility uh, with one of our videographers and sending out training videos for the kids. So again, this is something that isn't bringing in revenue for us. It's at, at no cost to the, to the families, but it's something that while we do still have some full timers on staff and on the payroll, something we are trying to roll out to hopefully soften that blow for us when we, we do open back up and keep some of those kids committed to our program.
0: But the the other side of this equation is not just on the business side. It's also on the customer side, right? This the, the cascading effect here. If you've got kids with parents and the parents lost their jobs and they were paying for the kid to get the training, well, now they don't have any money to pay for the service, and then that impacts your business as well on that side of the pipeline.
3: It does. And, and in terms of parents losing their jobs, someone asked me actually yesterday, in terms of our business, when do I think it's going to get back to 100%? And I said that that's the part I ultimately don't know. Um, I believe that the day that we can probably open the local and government officials of any of our cities or states that we're in, I think we can probably get back 50%, you know, within a week. The kids will be back. It's the next layer that I don't know because obviously there's, there's some parents and, and families out there that are very cognizant of the situation and they might have someone elderly at home or someone with some, um, um, previous medical issues that they don't want to chance it on. So for us, really, uh, from the business side, we really have to get to a certain number. Um, we're not like a restaurant where, you know, 50% can sort of uh, take us through a while. We really need to be at, you know, pretty much full capacity to make it work financially. It's a, it's a small margin business. So we really need to get to that point where we can get, you know, 75 plus percent of the kids that we have been having back to our sessions to make it work for us.
0: Right, so you founded this company, right? What, 17 years ago? Is that right? Yes, 2003. Yeah, so 2003. And so 17 years of building and three weeks, it, it, I mean, it, it, like I, I, I'm watching, and you're not the only business person that I've spoken to. I mean, this is – it's catastrophic. I, and nobody – it seems like nobody is really – thinking through the kind of damage that's being inflicted and i'm not saying that it's that that you know open everything back up and let's you know put everybody's lives at risk i'm not making that argument i just i'm i'm very concerned at what seems to me to be at least a lack of concern about businesses such as yourself like there's not going to be a switch that people flip and all of a sudden everything turns back on uh it's probably going to be more of like a flicker of the lights over time right it's not Because how do you how do you now dig yourself out if uh, you've seen all of this erosion in your numbers?
3: Well, what's crazy, as I mentioned, this is something that you've never factored in. Yeah, sometimes in in our North Carolina market, we sit there and say, maybe our first week or two of camp might have to be canceled during the summer because they've had some snow issues during the year. Or one of our coaches gets sick and a couple days have to be canceled or God forbid there's a you know, hailstorm and damage to a facility for a month. We don't sit there as we said earlier and everything's canceled. So for us, it's something that I'm a planner. I love looking at our models where we're going to be at next month, two months from now. This is honestly, it's very hard for me because I'm having to sit there a couple weeks at a time and figuring out what are we doing next? I I know what our staff is doing next week uh, here in Atlanta and our, and our part-time coaches in other cities, what we're doing. But after that, I'm not sure when we're going to open up. So for us, We really can't put stuff out there saying, hey, we're opening up May 1st. Uh, Because for us, again, we're not a restaurant where when we open today, people are just in there. We need some time to put it out on social media, to email the parents. People register for a number of sessions. So, again, a Starbucks or a restaurant, they can turn on their lights and most of their customers are driving by or they see the place. Ours is one of those where it takes weeks and months to build the clientele back to get them back into your programming. So for us, it's really not something that I can say, hey, here's where we're going to be at. Here's where our financials are going to be at. It's a week by week situation. So how do
0: you discuss that then with your coaches, your employees? How do you, I mean, how do you have those kinds of conversations? They've all got to be recognizing the tenuous situation.
3: Yeah. So unfortunately we did uh, here in Atlanta, we had 15 employees uh, right before all this stuff happened here in Atlanta. And we did have to let uh, 10 of those employees go Mm. uh, about a week or so ago. We could only – there's only so many things, jobs that you can give them that aren't coaching basketball, right, around our facility and some of the things that we can do. So we did furlough those employees and told them that as soon as we can possibly open up, they're great employees. There was nothing wrong with them. They did a great job. You know, they, they get paid pretty good wages. We just can't support them for, again, not knowing how long this time period was. If we knew that, hey, it was only two weeks, of course we would just keep them on payroll. It would be easier uh, from an administrative standpoint just to pay people for another week or two. Um, But when we don't know whether it's two weeks or two months or three months, uh, we had to make that decision, which was really, really tough. And for our um, five salaried people that we have here in Atlanta, kept them on board. And as I mentioned, they're doing Zoom video classes and and shooting some training videos for our players. So it's something again where we're having weekly meetings with our staff and explaining to them the updates and where I think we're going to be. Mm-hmm. But again, right now, uh, even for me, I think it's just a crapshoot from week to week.
0: This is you're talking about how you're you love to you know plan and look, and, and and sort of map out you know. The, the course um, wh- what I, what ke- the 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 phrase that kept going through my mind is beyond design it, uh, the first time I heard it it was in architectural terms and it was after 9/11 and I was ta- I was doing an interview with a uh, uh, structural engineer about nuclear power plants and they said oh no this is beyond design uh, nuclear power plant it would never you know uh, uh, get hit by this is uh, a plane and and collapse in and on itself it's beyond design and what that phrase meant was like You just don't design for something like that because the chance of it happening is just not really contemplated. It's beyond the design of whatever it is you're doing. And that's this is, I think, the position that you're in and uh, I'm in and small business owners are in, which is there isn't any way to really designed for what comes next because nobody knows and uh i'm looking at you know i've I spent all day looking at the models and the uh the projections and this and that and people say yes we're flattening the curve but all we're doing is pushing sort of the infections you know out past a certain date but then they then they start hitting too like it's not like we're going to just uh uh, uh you know self-quarantine our way out of this unless we come up with a vaccine so I'm waiting for like, well, what comes down the road in October, in November? Because mm-hmm. we can't do this again. What businesses can survive at that point?
3: Well, again, to your to your point on that is that businesses need to know. You know, again, if if you go to most businesses and say, hey, we need to shut down for three weeks, got it. We can make that work. Yeah. But people who own businesses and CEOs and CFOs, they, they need a plan, you know, and that's what's obviously hurting the market as well in terms of, you know, they always talk about the the market wants to be assured and they want to know what's going on. And when you're not sure of what's going on, you know, I applied for all these, the PPP loans yeah. and the EIDL loans and stuff that's out there. And I applied for the EIDL. Um, I mean, I applied, I had to have been one of the first, you know, whatever, thousands of people I applied, I mean, within 24 hours of when I even heard about it. And a few days later, I got an email saying, Hey, we, we updated the website. What, what you registered is no longer valid. And then I had to go on and do it again last week. So I've gone through three processes with them, <laughs> with the SBA, and haven't heard anything. Um, for the PPP, I applied to the three banks we work with here in Atlanta, small community banks, and then I applied to 17 other banks, some of them, uh, again, not knowing the scale of this, this thing and how it was going to lead down. Some of them were the, the major players, some of them were small community banks, and small, some of them were just you know single mom and pop shops. And over the uh, that was two weeks ago, and I've only heard back from three of them. And of those three, I, I believe I'm in step two. Uh, again, there's not a lot of information out there with, hey, here's the progress, and here it goes through. So. Um, again, there's just a lack of information for business owners and what the government's doing um, That that's something that's vital that they, they get out to the small business for sure.
0: Right. And a lot of these banks don't even know what the rules uh, and regulations are and how these programs are supposed to be administered. They've gotten a, a you know, lack of clarity uh, from the Small Business Administration and the Treasury Department on this stuff. So they're not even certain how to administer these loan programs either. Um I, I I don't know, 17. <laughs> what have you been doing with your time besides filling out bank applications? That's crazy.
3: Well, and again, I, I talked to my brother-in-law uh, two days ago, and he asked me how business is going. I said, look, I don't mind putting in 60-hour work weeks, but I love doing it when it's beneficial to my company and it's how to grow our business and hire and manage our employees and build our new facility. I hate spending 60-hour weeks of doing SBA paperwork and small business paperwork for for loans at small banks over and over. And that, for me, that's honestly what the past two weeks have been. It's been, it feels like busy work. You know, when you're at a school and a, there's a substitute teacher and they just come in and give you some paperwork that that's easy to do. It's not the hardest thing in the world, but it doesn't really get you anywhere. That's mm-hmm. what it, this system feels like right now. And I'm just hoping that there's, a, you know, ultimately a, a pot of gold at the end to help us get us through this next six or eight, 10 weeks, whatever it is.
0: And so you mentioned earlier, was it the EIDL? So what were those loans that you applied for? What was that program?
3: The EIDL is the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. That's something directly through the SBA. That's not through a bank. Uh, Again, I applied to that. I mean, uh, I believe the day that those tournaments were canceled. Mm. Uh, This was like March 12th or 14th, something like that, when it had barely just gotten up on the screen. And that... um, that loan, that was the one where they had mentioned that originally they were going to give ten thousand dollars within three days of the process to businesses that applied for it, just in advance. And they've come back, and again, I've I've heard some things where possibly they're not going to give you ten thousand um, dollars. Obviously, it's well past the three days that they they promised to. We're at three three weeks right now. Um, but then I've also heard things it would be for some of the mid-sized businesses, uh, or smaller businesses. Sorry, it was only going to be a thousand dollars per employee. Um, so some of the people that do only have three or four employees, they were going to get three or $4,000 and that's the economic injury disaster loan, the EIDL. And part of that, they didn't ask how much money we needed or things like that. They literally wanted all of our financials, our tax records, our cost of goods sold or services, our revenue. They wanted all that information. And I believe again, the information's not out there that they're computing on their own. Mm. The PPP is the payroll protection yeah. and, uh, um, the banks will give you a two and a half times of the monthly payroll, but if you, if again, if you look at businesses like ours, where rent is a bigger factor than payroll, um, that's something that, you know, obviously it's beneficial if, and when we get it, but it's not going to help us a uh, whole heck of a lot for more than, you know, four or five weeks. Right.
0: So have you contemplated like, is this the end of the business? I mean, thoughts had to cross your mind, I'm assuming.
3: Yeah, I, I don't, to me, I don't think it's the end of the business. I think, uh, we're obviously going to need some support, and I have uh, I have faith in that the government's going to do the right thing, and ultimately the money's going to get to us. Obviously, I'd like it in my account today versus three weeks from now, um, but we're okay. I, I saw an in, I saw a um, graphic on social media a few days ago that talked about the cash reserves that most businesses have, and it said most small businesses have, I believe it was twenty six or twenty seven days of cash, some some more, some less. Yeah. Um, so we've been operating, you know, for three weeks without any revenue. We can go for probably about a, another three or four weeks, but after that it gets really tough, and that's one where, as a business person, you have to decide, how much more money uh, do I want to put in? Because I own the business completely by myself. How much more do I want to put in the business? Because, again, six months from now, I think we'll be okay, but during that time, how much money would we have to put in to yeah. sustain the business over the next those next six months? Right, it's
0: one of the concerns I have is just the the, the destruction of wealth, Um that's occurring right now uh it's 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 a problem because this is you know people um that are you know using their savings retirement savings college savings uh, uh you know draining uh, these accounts in order to to kind of keep treading water in the hopes that something changes here, and like like to your point about a lack of clarity, we're not getting any kind of a any kind of a clear message about how we start kind of unwinding where we are, uh, and maybe that's just you know I don't know maybe that's just an optimistic way of looking at things because it's like let's contemplate how we ha- how we you know bounce back, and maybe that's optimism, but I also feel like we need to have some of this messaging from leadership, uh, at a, you know, at a local level, but also at the federal level to say like, this is how we intend to open the economy back up. It's not like you're just going to, as I said earlier, flip the switch and everything comes roaring back to life.
3: Well, in defense of the SBA, as crazy as that it sounds for a small business owner to be doing right now, (laughs) one of our employees did ask me yesterday, he said yesterday, he said, Lee, why is it taking so long? And I gave him the analogy from obviously being in the basketball business. I told our coach, I said, look, you know, normally you can handle uh, 100 kids at one of our camps during a week, right? He said, yeah. And I said, well, wonder if I gave you 200 kids. Could you somehow mathematically make that work and hire some coaches? He goes, sure. I said, what about 250 in a week? And he said, probably not. I said, wonder if I gave you 5,000 kids in a week? I said, it wouldn't matter how much money I gave you to make that work. Right. You wouldn't have the facilities, the manpower. You just couldn't make it work. So the SBA, I saw that last year they loaned a total of $20 billion. And that's over a course of twelve months. And right now, they're trying to get out three hundred and fifty billion over, you know, two, three, four weeks. And so, for me, I think that the money is there. I think the program can work. To me, I look at it, and I said this a week or two ago: that mathematically getting that money out to the tens of thousands of small businesses is just a mathematical puzzle that I'm not sure how they're going to get that done in time. So that that therein lies the problem. That the money's there. The businesses need it can they get it to the businesses in time before businesses are truly out of business
0: out of business right it's the same issue with the unemployment insurance uh and the claims that are being filed you know you have this this i mean it's it's unlike anything else that we've ever seen as a nation the the spike in unemployment claims uh you know we're now i think over it's like over 10 million uh just in three weeks and th- our offices at the state levels they're not they're not set up and prepared to process that many people. It's just it's just not possible for them to do it. And so everything is delayed. Their phones are all jammed up and their servers are crashing and stuff. Uh, so at some point, yet we do hope that it kind of works out uh, and and the backlog gets gets uh, cleared out. But. You know, every single week, like you said, every single week that it doesn't get done, there are more people that are now going to be applying, more businesses that are now closing, It's and it's just sort of this slow rolling disaster uh, if we're not able to, to get the fixes done faster,
3: I'm afraid. Yeah. So so that's the thing that, you know, for businesses that, uh, you know, I was explaining to my wife the other day in terms of the stock market going down, right? I said, it would make it easy if there's a stock that's $100 and it drops to 50, it drops 50%. But now it's got to increase 100% to get back to where it was. And I said business is sort of the same thing. Each day that these businesses are suffering, it's not just that day they have to get back. It's a multiple or an exponential growth that they have to do to get back. And so small businesses and mid-sized businesses and probably even some large corporations, they need cash and they need it fast. And that's going to be really, really important that, um, again, are we fine for two or three weeks as is? Yes. Um, But if this thing rolls another – four six eight weeks and money's not being transferred to small businesses and they're not allowed and being allowed to open up to some degree uh i think it's really going to be something that's disastrous but uh, i'm I'm hopeful that hopefully it'll change over the next few weeks
0: lee miller uh founder of elite hoops basketball the website is elitehoopsbasketball.com. anything else you want to add you think is important or interesting to note here that we haven't covered already
3: No, I think, you know, I appreciate for everybody listening and and, uh, listening to us talk a little basketball and a little bit of business. So obviously you can check us out online at EliteHoopsBasketball.com, skill development training for for players ages six all the way through college and pros.
0: All right, Lee, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, prayers and best luck for the business. And uh, I hope it works out for you and your employees and your
3: family. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: All right. up next we're going to listen to an interview that dr anthony fauci did on fox news some really good information there first here's some really good information 333-4483 what is that pete glad you asked that's the phone number for rowena patton 333-4483 her website is mountainhomehunt.com and she understands that all of this covid stuff has upended a lot of people's plans. You were maybe looking to buy a house. You were looking to sell a house. Either way, uh, give her a call. She'll do a video chat with you and let you know sort of what the options are, how this is uh, going to play out in the real estate industry, because a lot of folks like moving is actually considered to be an essential service, by the way. If you have to move, uh, you got another job someplace or uh, you were you know, the wheels were already in motion uh, and you have to keep going with it. Uh, then she's going to help you with that. But you don't want people walking through your house spreading coronavirus everywhere, right? She's been doing video house tours since 2007. She knows what she's doing. She and her all-star powerhouse team, they're the best. Okay, there is no risk to you either when you purchase under the love it or leave it guarantee uh, with seller's fees free for six months and a discount for 10 years if you have to leave your house after you just got one. All right, so uh, give her a call 333-4483, 333 4483 mountainhomehunt.com is the website, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. All right, so Dr. Fa- uh, sorry, Fauci. Anthony Fauci. He is the uh, Coronavirus Task Force member. He appeared on Waters World on Saturday, and he spoke about the virus coming to the United States and China's handling of the crisis early on. He also discussed the virus's spread from China and how it is transmitted in general.
4: So let's just start in January or February. When was the first time that you realized that this was a major problem, because I remember in late January, you were telling people, early February, this was nothing to be concerned for most Americans.
5: Americans, for the most part, were not at risk. It was in January at a time uh, when the Chinese were saying, first, that it was only going from an animal to a human, and then when there were human cases that looked like they were transmitted, that it was very inefficiently transmitted. It was at that time in, I believe, mid-January, that we made the statement that if, in fact, that's true, that this is mostly animal to human and we're not in China and it's very inefficiently spread, that, in fact, it may not be something that is of a major threat outside of China. When it became clear that not only is it transmitted efficiently from human to human, but that it was very very contagious in the sense of easily transmittable, and it also had a high degree of morbidity and mortality. At that point, it became very clear that right. we were in for a problem, because we were getting travel cases from China, and even though we cut off the Chinese pretty quickly, once it's seeded in this country, then it does what any highly transmissible virus does. Right. So there's nothing inconsistent right. with the information we had.
4: No, I totally understand. You were working with the information that was available at the time. At this point, do you feel like you were misled by the Chinese? Do you feel misled by the World Health Organization? Because you had, I said, said nice things about the leader of the World Health Organization. Now, looking back, it looks like he was not completely honest or maybe he was deceived. How do you feel about that?
5: You know, I don't know where the missteps went. The only thing I know with the end result was that, early on, we did not get correct information. And the incorrect information was propagated right from the beginning, because, you know, when the first cases came out that were identified, I think, on December 31st in China, and we became aware of this, they said this was just animal to human, period. Uh, Now we know, retrospectively, that there was ongoing transmission from human to human in China probably at least a right. few weeks before then. And then when we finally did get right. the virus here, it was, became clear that when we started looking at what was going on, that that was misinformation right from the beginning. So, whosever fault that was, you know, we're going to go back and take a look at that when this is all over, but clearly it was sure. not the right information that was given to us.
4: Right. So, now that we've done this almost full-scale national economic lockdown... Are there things that cross your mind and think maybe would you have done it any differently? Could you have done everybody under 45 go to work? Could you have maybe done regional shutdowns? Could you have maybe just concentrated in the hot spots? Um, could you have had everybody wear masks to work? Are there, are there other things that you think maybe you could have done to spare the country from a full economic shutdown?
5: Well, my advice was that we were dealing with a situation where the transmissibility was efficient enough that we could not take the chance that we would just let people get infected and think that there would be no really very serious consequences because people who were young, even though they did not necessarily get ill at all, clearly would be the vectors to transmit it to the people who were highly vulnerable the elderly and those with underlying conditions. So one of those things that you can look at is how do you cut that off? And the way, the best way to do it is to have a physical separation the way we have with the guidelines that are now in effect.
4: I have a very high regard for you, Dr. Fauci, but I just wanna be fair because there are some people who are very angry with you who think that this, I guess, advice to the president to shut everything down to close businesses has really cost a lot of people's jobs. Their livelihood, their businesses, everything. What would you say to those people?
5: Well, I mean, obviously that's very unfortunate. I mean, that's a consequence. That's you know, you have to balance the attempt to save as many lives as right. you can with what is known as a deleterious effect on the economy, which is the reason why. Right now, we're looking very carefully about how we can possibly, in a safe way, reopen, as they say, reopen the country to the economic uh, uh, opportunities that we have. We felt at the time, and still do now, that that was the right thing to do. Could there have been other approaches? I mean, I'm humble enough to know that maybe there could be. That was the choice we made based on the information that we have. One can always second-guess. But that happens. This is a serious situation that has impacted a lot of people.
4: Right. And you believe we're at our peak probably this weekend? Fingers crossed, hopefully?
5: I hope so. I mean, what we're seeing, for example, in a place like New York, which we predicted, correctly, that this would be a really bad week, where every day, the next day, would be more deaths than the previous day. But as that was happening, the engine that fuels the outbreak in New York, namely the number of new cases that lead to hospitalizations, that lead to intensive care, that lead to death, clearly are significantly less this week than they were the previous week. So it seems almost a paradox, but it really isn't. At the same time that the deaths continue to go up, we're having indications that we are reaching that peak, that apex, and will start to come down. If it acts the way we've seen it act in China, that decline will be very steep. So we may go from a significant number of deaths, even more than we've seen, to a situation where there's a radical drop in the number of deaths, which will be the last to see, but the hospitalizations are already indicating that we're going in the right direction.
0: I have seen Dr. Fauci interviewed, I think, 17 billion times by now. And uh, that's actually the most helpful uh, and most informative interview I think I've heard from him. And it took Jesse Waters to do it. Not that I have anything against Jesse Waters. I'm just noting this was the guy who used to go around, walk around on the beaches and interview the girls during spring break. But he did a better job interviewing Dr. Fauci (laughs) than than, uh, most of the so-called respected journalists at all of the other legacy outlets. There was a piece, got a lot of uh, play this weekend, by Robert Wright over at Wired.com. Here's the headline. The right-wing plan to investigate the World Health Organization isn't totally wrong. And then the subhead (laughs) is... A right-wing stunt to pin the blame for COVID-19 on the World Health Organization actually contains a useful notion. (laughs) So this is, it's a right-wing stunt, you see. This is all about shifting the blame away from Trump and onto the World Health Organization. As if there's no merit to this idea. Although this guy, at least, uh, you know, because remember, he's talking to a, uh, you know, a a progressive audience here at Wired.com. And so uh he's begrudgingly acknowledging and maybe this is helpful to kind of get it into the left uh wing echo chamber here that you've been lied to by the World Health Organization and by the communist Chinese regime. A uh so he says there's at least some reason to suspect the World Health Organization led by Director General Tedros Adhanom Adhanom I think I pronounced that right. Knowingly and consequentially misled us. This week, President Trump expanded his arsenal for dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. He went from a blame China, not me strategy to a blame China and the World Health Organization, not me strategy. Okay, that's not Trump's strategy for dealing with the virus. Okay, that's the first lie that this journalist is offering up. This week, the president expanded his arsenal for dealing with the virus. He's not... That's not, that's not a tactic in dealing with the virus, right, in dealing with the pandemic. It's not a tactic in dealing with that. It is a tactic in dealing with the propaganda being uh, asserted uh, and uh, filled on social media by the Chinese, and they're, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. I was not aware how many people were hooked onto that sweet, sweet Chinese money, but I am now taking notes during the, all of this. This week, President Trump expanded his arsenal, right? So officials at the World Health Organization, Trump said at a press conference, are very biased towards China. Just look at how in the early weeks of the outbreak, they said there's no big deal, there's no big problem, there's nothing. Uh, So Trump said he'll be looking whether to freeze U.S. funding for the World Health Organization. And then this guy at Wired.com says, this is a familiar move that the right-wingers take. Uh, you know, they, uh, you subject international institutions to scrutiny that if all goes according to plan, it can be used to justify cutting their funding. Then, as the script typically unfolds, global governance fans like me spring to the defense of these institutions. But in this case, I am partly in sync with the right-wing move. This is, this is what I mean. Everything doesn't have to be viewed through the prism of Trump, guys. Look at what the World Health Organization did. Look at what they said. And he says, I'm not in favor of cutting WHO funding. I'm also not nearly as sure uh, that the World Health Organization is guilty as charged. But the organization could have performed better. (laughs) You like the language there? Eh, They could have done a better job. Because I'm sure that's how he would frame it with Donald Trump, right? Like, it's this apologetic, well, you know, I I guess Trump could have done a better job. But I'm not saying, you know, we should get rid of him or anything. No, no, no. See, when it's Trump, it's it's the worst ever. He's got body bags on his conscience, blood on his hands, right? But when it's the World Health Organization, it's like, man, they could have done a better job. He says, um, institutions, he says, well, before I get into the consequential misleading, let me lay out a larger reason that I think fellow global governance fans should consider getting on the investigate the who bandwagon. Institutions of international governance, like institutions of national governance, are prone to a particular form of corruption. They are inclined to serve powerful interests at the expense of their mission. The basic allegation, he says later in the piece, is that China tried to cover up the COVID-19 outbreak and the World Health Organization helped to do that. The most damning piece of evidence is a tweet from the WHO on January 14th, and it said preliminary investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human to human transmission. That was 18 days after a group of doctors told Wuhan health officials of a disturbing cluster of illnesses, and it was 14 days after both China's national government and the WHO were officially notified. So, is it really plausible that officials in Beijing or at the World Health Organization still doubted that the illness was moving from person to person? It's ridiculous. They had the evidence that it was human-to-human transmission, and they realized that China had blown it. But the World Health Organization sends out that tweet telling everybody, don't worry, no problems. It's not human-to-human. You heard Dr. Fauci talk about it as well. They were told by who? They were told by China. They said this is just, uh, it's, it's going in a couple of cases from animal to human, but not human to human, and uh, no big deal. They responded accordingly, and when they realized, holy Toledo, China's lying, that's when they started implementing the bans, that's when they started doing the social distancing recommendations, all of the mitigation efforts began when they realized China was lying. I don't know why this is such a, I don't understand why this is such a heavy lift for people who hate Trump so much to understand. Like, you can keep hating Trump, that's fine, I'm not telling you give up your hate, I'm, I'm sort of like the uh, the Emperor here in the Star Wars movie, right? Yeah, just let it run through you. That's fine. But it doesn't mean that the Who and China are all above board on this, all right? Okay, thanks so much for tuning into the program. Download the podcasts at com and have your favorite podcast platforms. I appreciate the support. And don't break anything while I'm gone.